0: UEG Talks, gastroenterology to go. Welcome to our GI podcast. Listen for fresh insights and perspectives in science, education, and professional development.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to the UEG Talks. Welcome to 2024. It's Predit Mundra here. Really looking forward to the conversation today. Now, Over the last few years, IBD treatment or therapy has expanded exponentially. This seems to be a very exciting time for our IBDologists and these days the choice of different treatment or therapies that they can use seems pretty limitless. Uh, If they run out of any licensed and approved therapies, there are always plenty of trial medications in development they can reach out to. However, for a non-expert like me and a general gastroenterologist, life in the treatment of IBD has increasingly become ever more confusing. In the past, I remember when I was a registrar uh, or in training, I mean, we followed a very simple stepwise approach to treatment. You know, it was a, a step-down approach or a step-up approach, whatever it was. But the current path of IBD therapy It seems pretty much like a maze with so many crossroads and very confusing for clinicians and patients alike. So in in today's discussion, we want to cover some very basic knowledge of the new therapies beyond the anti-TNFs or where they stand in the treatment paradigm, that is if this can be defined, and I suspect it won't be easy for my guest. We also try and cover how best to use some of the conventional therapy, and I do hope at the end of the discussion, a general gastroenterologists or non-experts or trainees and IBD nurse specialists who are starting the career will get some clarity on some of these therapies. We're not planning to delve into very much details of individual therapy. We aim to get some sort of broad knowledge on this. And to talk about this today, I would like to welcome my guest, Dr. Ignacio Catalan. who's a consultant gastroenterologist at Hospital Lavanga in Norway, specialising in IPT. Dr Catalan is also a researcher at Norwegian University of Science and Technology and is the national representative of Norway at the ECHO and is also a UEG Educational
0: Committee member.
1: Welcome to UEG Talks, Nacho.
0: Hi Pradeep, thank you very much for the kind presentation and for the invite to join this this, uh, project. And congratulations for the great work you're doing in the UEG Talks team. I think we, we've been talking about doing this podcast for a long time in UEG. Now it's happening and it's very successful. So I'm very happy about that. I'm very happy to be talking about this topic that I think it's it's a difficult one, but it's also very, very practical. And yeah, it's getting more difficult to navigate the entire landscape also for for IBD-focused clinicians. So let's try to do our best to to clarify a bit and give practical clues if possible.
1: Excellent. Nacho, I want to start by asking you uh, your views on a very generic overarching question. As a non ibdologist my understanding looking at various therapies is that we probably reached a peak or a threshold in terms of IBD medical therapy. I guess The data and efficacy for any new therapy that I see presented in in conferences and things beyond the uh, first generation anti-TNFs, for me, as an outsider, look exactly the same and don't seem to have changed in years. Almost like you can replace the drug name with the presented graphs and they, they look exactly the same. What's your comment on this?
0: Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, d- despite that we have the approval of many new drugs, we still put in, like, let's say, deep remission only one out of three patients at one year, and so um, that's completely true. And and if you if you look at uh, the historic view, we have a a recent review from Fernando Magro saying that this is the case for Crohn's. And, and this is the case for for of colitis as well. We, the, the clinical remission rates have been stable. So we have more, but not necessarily better. But it's better in a way that we have different ways of administration and and different mechanisms of action. So that gives us more freedom, but but not necessarily. More effectiveness. In fact, if you look back in time and you look at the sonic data, for example, so classic combination of infliximab and azathioprine gives uh, clinical remissions uh, of almost sixty percent, and we haven't seen those higher numbers. So still, classic combination therapy is is top. So the, the therapeutic ceiling, it's it's true. I mean, it's it's it's, it's a reality. I mean, the, the challenge here, and you you will hear a lot about it, is how to do better, how to overcome that, and obviously. Uh, precision medicine plays a part. I mean, try to use the right drug early and the, the drug that it's going to work. I think we need to understand better what's the cause of the disease. And, and for sure, Crohn's and colitis are two different beasts. So it's it's very different. And we might need to probably reclassify Crohn's in ileal Crohn's and colonic Crohn's because these are two different also probably entities. And I don't know, try to combine therapies. You, you, you're going to hear a lot about that in ECHO, uh, next month, how to combine in patients at high risk. Yeah, so that it, it happens. And also, I'm a big proponent of out-of-the-box therapy. So, like, like how to use things to treat inflammation that are not immune suppression. So, diet, for example, FMT, phages, uh, manipulation of lymphocytes. So, how to boost your immunity and to control inflammation without suppressing. Because every time you suppress inflammation, you you pay the price in terms of infections and, and risk for cancer. So.
1: Yeah, I guess they play equally important role, which is pretty much ignored. I guess the, most of the therapy is sort of pharma-driven and, uh, you know, trying to focus on dietary therapy, uh, FMT, is not of uh, much importance to them. And, Nacho, before we move on to the therapies beyond anti-TNFs, can you give us a brief overview on where anti-TNFs themselves stand in the treatment of IBD in 2024? Are they still the mainstay of IBD medical treatment or do you see them as going out of fashion soon?
0: Yeah, I mean as, as everybody knows anti-TNF's have been the game changer in IBD for the last 20 years since early introduction in, in the beginning of the 2000s. We have a lot of experience with them. Mostly we use infliximab IV but as you know we are using it more and more subcutaneously so that's that's something new in, in and the we know that they work for both crohn's and colitis they put patients in remission they they cure the mucosa and you can use them and they are relatively safe so it's like the devil you know right it's like something something that works something that is is not perfect but uh, that, uh, of course, has still a prominent role, especially thinking that we now have biosimilars that makes the access to these drugs much easier, especially in contexts where costs are important. So you might not think about it as much as you did 10 years ago when to start an anti-TNF. So it's still there. They, they are useful. They are, they are relatively safe. They are not very expensive but of course they, they have limitations and that is something that uh, we know you have to check out for infections before you give them tuberculosis uh, hiv hepatitis b c right so and they have some contraindications like heart failure uh, multiple sclerosis for example allergies and and these are drugs that in the long run increase the risk of infections so this is all, also something that is very known in some types of cancer like like lymphoma. And and I mean, the, the main challenge we have with with these drugs is that many patients lose response. So that is, as you know, the problem, and that is where the new drugs come in and they can give us a hand. And, they, and that's been happening for the last 10 years since the introduction of vedolizumab. So the idea is to try to find ways to not lose response. And and, and if you do it, identify patients quickly and, and do it as a smart change as as possible because that's the rule unless you treat with an immunomodulator and then you also pay a price in terms of safety so that is something uh, to have in mind so still i think they are still good drugs they are still in many countries in europe our first choice and uh, first-line therapy because of uh, cost and, and expertise and they are going to be there and uh, in fact if you look at the data if you look at head-to-heads, we don't have many, but nobody wants to fight infliximab. So the head-to-heads are against the limo. So that tells you that infliximab is, a, you know, it's a, it's a heavyweight. And I think it's, it's still going to be there. Excellent. Okay.
1: So in conclusion, essentially, there still are mainstay and anything else comes afterwards. So, Nacho, this is the core of the discussion today. And this is a very simple question for me. Uh, you may laugh as an IBD specialist, but I think it's very difficult for me to even remember the drug names these days with the newer medications. But I think a lot of our listeners, trainees, and non-IBD gastroenterologists would probably find it useful if you can say what are the current drugs that are available to use beyond the anti NTDNFs, or in brief, what the mechanism of action is, and where can be used them? Which type of IBD can be used them? Sort of in, in in a very brief kind of way, if you could summarize this.
0: Yeah, right. This is a this is a wide topic, but let's put it this way. I mean, if you look historically, you can think about a first wave of biologics. That is the two thousands. That is the introduction of infliximab and adalimumab. Then not much happened, and then in twenty fourteen, vedolizumab was approved. So we could call it like a second wave of, of biologics. So between 2014 and 2020, it was the time of vedolizumab, ustekinumab, and tofacitinib. Okay, so these are, these are also well-known. Vedolizumab is an alpha-4, beta-7 anti-integrine, preventing migration from the bloodstream to the mucosa of activated lymphocytes. We have uh, wide use and expertise uh, with that. In in 16 and 19, you can use it for Crohn's and and colitis. You can also use ustekinumab for Crohn's and colitis. And this is an IL-1223 inhibitor. It's a monoclonal antibody. Induction is IV, and then you use it uh, subcutaneously, usually. And just to name it, because the new P19 IL-23 selective are different, the ustekinumab started in the P40 subunit. That means... You don't need to remember that, but I mean, this is a common subunit of IL-12 and 23. And that's why you use one monoclonal antibody and you inhibit two cytokines. So that is, we are talking about 16 and 19. And then in 18 was the first JAK inhibitor. So these are new kind of drugs. These are oral, once daily or twice daily. They are easy to administer and they inhibit this cascade of, of kinases intracellularly, that is called the Jack Stat system. That's complicated, but w- we need to remember that there are four types of Jacks: Jack One, Jack Two, Jack Three, and TIC Two. So the first one, Tofacitinib, is it's it's more a pan Jack, so inhibits uh, all these Jacks to a degree, and it's only licensed for ulcerative colitis. So that, that is that is that is a key difference with Vedolizumab and Ustekinumab that you can use in both. And then you can think about from 2020 like a third wave of drugs. That came around and a lot has happened in the last uh, four years, right? So, one new mechanism of action is S1P receptor modulators, so sphingosin 1 phosphate receptor modulators. These are drugs that inhibit the aggression of lymphocytes from the lymph node to the mucosa. So, remember, bedolizumab was inhibiting. Uh, the migration from the bloodstream to the mucosa, and this S1P receptor modulator inhibits the aggression. So it prevents them from going out of the lymph node to the mucosa. So It's a different mechanism of action through the internalization of these receptors. The first one approved was Osanimod, and very recently, in 2023, mode was approved which is another it's 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 another variant we're not going to get in, in that but that is a new completely new mechanism of action oral drugs once daily then the second the, the second of this third wave is the jack 1 selective remember tofacitinib is a pan jack so the new generation of jacks are more selective to jack 1 that is supposed to have a more effective uh, result, and they, they might be more safe. But this is, needs to be a better address. And these two yak one selective of filgotinib and upadacitinib. So now we have some new Jak selectives. And then lastly, as we said, ustekinumab is IL twelve twenty three. So the new generation is a, a monoclonal antibodies that are only blocking p nineteen subunit. That is, this is the subunit that only IL twenty three has. So it's not common. That means that you would only inhibit IL-23. So just to clarify, because sometimes you hear P19 or IL-23 inhibitors, it's the same thing. What it means is that it inhibits the unique subunit of IL-23. And these two very new drugs that we don't have yet much experience with is risankizumab, that is approved for, for Crohn's and mirikizumab, that it's been uh, approved for ulcerative colitis. So this is, this is more or less just to give you an overview. And to summarize a little bit, in ulcerative colitis, we have more options. So there are four drugs that you can use only in ulcerative colitis. Two jacks, tofacitinib and filgotinib, the S1Ps, and mirikizumab, so the P19. While in Crohn's disease, risankizumab. so the P19, is only, is only licensed for Crohn's. So, <laughs> so the, the, the landscape, it's growing, it's, it's slightly complicated, but yeah, think, think about it like first biologics, second wave, BEDO, USTE, and then the jacks, the P19s, and the anti integrins. So it might be a way to, to look at it. And if I can say something, uh, Pradeep, about things that we need to have into account with all this mess of, of new drugs, yeah, I think there are three important things. Pregnancy. So if your patient wants to get pregnant, has the wish, you will not use JAKs or S1Ps. They are contraindicated in pregnancy. That's important to know. The other thing is cardiovascular risk in older patients. We know that JAK inhibitors are probably not the drug you want to use. Remember JAK inhibitors, Tofacitinib, PanJAK, Filgotinib, and Upadacitinib, JAK1, selective. And also patients with a lot of extra intestinal manifestations, probably you don't want to use Bedolizumab since it's a more selective, gut-selective drug. So these are three main things that can help you uh, at least, uh, you know, discard some of these drugs. But in practice, we are going to be using a biosimilar first line, and if patient loses response, we might want to use another one. But it could be that this changes over time. So we,
1: with the amount of drugs available these days, you are going by exclusion, and I guess we come to, or maybe at some point, you're going to talk about precision medicine and selecting uh, these medications. I guess we, if we have time, we'll cover that later. So you exclude some of the drugs, and then you kind of go by the cost and availability and all that. Now going back to sort of you know infliximab and adalimumab, nature have been well established. Their role in both UC and Crohn's, as you alluded to. And they are a very well-established first-line advanced therapy. So just to kind of clarify what I mean by advanced therapy for our listeners, is any treatment beyond the basic 5-ASAs and thipurins. And these days, as you said, uh, with the generic alternatives and significant cost reduction over the last few years with these, it's probably pretty much a, a no-brainer to use or trying to use a non entity NF advanced therapy as a first line. But is there any scenarios, natural where you would use these as first line? Certainly, I don't know how it is in Norway. In the UK, some of these new molecules have been pitched or cost-comparative compared to generics. So can you give us your thoughts about it? And where in your clinical practice would you reach out to these drugs as first line?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think in most of Europe, by default, you're gonna be using an anti-TNF biosimilar as as a first choice. That is still the case. There might be some patients, and we know from clinical trials, I mean, in clinical trials, you are using the drug as a, as a first line in most patients, although there might be some, some patients that lost response. So we know that all of them might work as first line therapies. That The problem is mostly cost and expertise, right? So we don't know. And to make it even more complicated, there are more biosimilars coming. For example, ustekinumab, right? So that's going to compete with the, with the biosimilars we know now. So this is going to be interesting to see how, how it moves forward. You can think about, just to give some practical uh, tips if, if it's possible. So, for example, in, in patients with ulcerative colitis that are older, that uh, have had a history of cancer of, or infections or use a lot of drugs and, and you want to stay on the, on, the, on the safe side, probably is a good is a good choice as a first-line therapy if you have the chance to use it as a first-line therapy, for example. I mean, in Norway, we, we have to use an anti-TNF first unless you justify why not, right? So that could be a scenario where you could use vedolizumab in UC and we have data that support it. For example, in Crohn's, if the patient has a psoriasis or, or psoriatic arthritis, you might want to use ustekinumab and then kill two birds with a stone, right? So that that, that could be also a candidate and of course if you work with rheumatology and the patient have for example arthralgia or arthritis as a main thing i think JAK inhibitors and the new IL23s are are, are probably going to play a role as a first line but uh, this is what we this is what we don't know the other thing is is that what we would like to know is which patients are not going to respond to TNF because then you might use another first line, right? So there's a lot of research on that. And we know that, uh, I mean, you can check mucosal markers like oncostatin or IL-13 or some HLA aplotypes that can help you make that decisions. But we still don't have good information for that. So, but ideally what we would like to have is, okay, I want to use a first line. Has the patient a, a, a predominant, I don't know, anti-TNF pathway, or is this more an IL-12-23 pathway? Or, or does he have uh, some uh, markers that prevent uh, them from having a good response to anti-TNF? Then I would choose something else as a first line. So the short answer is, yes, you can use any of them as a first line. The problem is cost. And, and there might be some profiles where you want to use. If you have total freedom, I think uh, there might be some, some patient profiles that are going to, to help you decide. But we don't know we don't we don't know much yet because, as we said, if you look at head to head trials, think about Varsity comparing Bedo and Adalimumab or Seaview Ustekinumab and and Adalimumab. So we know that they work. They work uh, at least as well. Eventually, a little better in the case of Bedo. So they work. So the moment we have biosimilars of of, of Ustekinumab, eventually of Bedolizumab, then it's going to be very interesting who. Who, uh, who who is first so so but as as of today anti-tnfs are still first line and only in some cases we would choose something different as first line so usually all these drugs that we are using in anti-tnf failure in practice as of today at least that's the case in norway
1: Thanks for listening, everyone. That concludes the first part of this episode. We'll be back soon with the second part of the same topic with Dr. Catalan in a few weeks' time.